Welcome to the 55th episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. I'm your host, David Helvarg, and my co-host is Vicki Nichols-Goldstein of the Inland Ocean Coalition. Hello there. And today we're speaking with Hilton Kelly, Executive Director and Founder of CETA, the Community and Power and Development Association of Port Arthur, Texas, one of the most polluted coastal towns in America. A former actor and Navy veteran, Hilton returned home to Port Arthur to organize for justice for his community and others in a part of the Gulf Coast known as Cancer Alley. A winner of the prestigious Goldman Environmental Prize, he was recently on a panel I moderated on the Gulf of Mexico and its needed transition from oil and gas to clean energy in a racially just and equitable future. So Hilton, let's start in the past rather than the future. You were born and raised in Port Arthur. Maybe you can tell us something about the town's history and growing up Yes, there. that's exactly right. Uh, first of all, thank you all for having me. I really uh, appreciate uh, being on the show and having a chance to share my story. Uh, yes, I was born in Port Arthur, Texas in 1960, August the 18th. Uh, I was born in a government housing project called Carver Terrace. Carver Terrace uh, was a was an apartment complex that was designed to help moderate to low income people get on their feet. Uh, when I was born, my mother was 17 years old. She had just turned 17 and she was a very young mom and she stayed with her grandmother because uh, she lost her parents at a very young age. Times were tough, but yet uh, I was born actually in the back bedroom by a midwife. But growing up in Port Arthur, Texas, you know, we had a very, very well-rounded community where neighbor looked after neighbor um, and, you know, we, we had a pretty good childhood growing up there. But, of course, Jim Crow was alive and well in the 1960s. Uh, so the West Side community where I grew up was predominantly all African-American. And it was literally designed on the other side of the railroad tracks. There was a divide between black and white residents. Uh, and our divide was the historic railroad track in the South. Like in the big cities, they had highways that they would build to separate the races. But in the South, they used railroad tracks. And so we lived literally on the other side of the track, but yet life was good, you know, from a child's perspective. I mean, we had grocery stores on that side of town. We had movie theaters. Um, we had a YMCA. We had the Masons, uh, social and civic groups that really took care of the kids and I was even in the Boy Scouts. I became an Eagle Scout. I learned to swim on the west side of Port Arthur. And so we really didn't have to go on the other side of the track for, for anything, really, uh, from a child's perspective. Periodically, we would go downtown, and that's when different ethnicities could, could mix and whatnot. But then there was a certain time frame where you had to be back in your community. That's how controlled it was and marginalized. But nonetheless, we had a pretty good time on the west side. I uh, graduated from... Lincoln High School. Uh, Lincoln High School was on the, in the West Side community as well. I graduated from high school in 1978. But while I was in high school, I fell in love with theater. I fell in love with drama. Um, and I finally got into the theater uh, uh, class. And for what my 11th grade year, so 11th and 12th grade, we ended up going to state. I was in a play called um, uh, The First Breeze of Summer where I won all-star cast and honorable mention. And so my drama teacher encouraged me to, he said, Hilton, you really have a gift and I would encourage you, if you ever make it to California, 
you really want to pursue a career in acting. And that really gave me a dream because initially I didn't really have any idea as to what I wanted to do when graduating from high school. But I did make it to California by way of the Navy. I joined the Navy when I was 19 years old. And actually, I had three options. I had an option to be stationed in uh, New Orleans or Great Lakes up in Illinois or Alameda, Naval Air Station in Alameda, California. Bam, that was my ticket. So when I got out of the service in 1984, I decided, I decided to start a, a, a business and it was called Kelly's Home Maintenance and Repair Service. And what my job was, what, what our service was, I did basic electrical work um, and I put an ad in a thrifty, I think it's called the Fleet Market Paper in California. And I put a $50 ad in that paper and man, my page, we had pages back then. Uh, my pages started buzzing <laughs> and it did fairly well for me. But yet it was in 1988 when a, a, um, a bunch of trailers rolled into this neighborhood uh, where I was living. And I was just wondering what was going on. There was so many of them. And then these cars were pulling out. And then, then I seen a couple of actors uh, jumped out. Leon, Leon, this guy named Leon played in the Five Heartbeats. He was a star on this show called Midnight Caller. Now, Midnight Caller was filmed in San Francisco on Army Street, uh, where Army and Mission intersect. And um, there was a huge warehouse where I went to work, but yet, um, but when they came into the neighborhood, I just went up to them and asked them, wow, how can I get involved? And I'll never forget, I ran into a young lady named Cecily, uh, uh, was Cecily Jordan. And uh, she said, well, we don't need any more people right now. She said, but uh, we can start you off with some extras work if you'd like to do that. And I was like, I didn't even know what it was. I said, sure, I'll, I'll do it. Michael T. Williamson, the gentleman who played Bubba in Forrest Gump, uh, became a good friend of mine. I had become his personal stand-in um, on the show of Midnight Caller. And there were dozens of other shows. I, I worked on Mrs. Doubtfire with Robin Williams. Uh, they filmed all over Oakland, California. And then, uh, you know, uh, there was another show with Whoopi Goldberg and, and uh, what, Ted Danson, uh, Made in America, I believe it was. And so, man, I'm meeting all these stars, having a great time. And the last show I worked on was uh, 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 Nash Bridges with Don Johnson and Cheech Meredith. And that particular, uh, that particular set was set up at Fisherman's Wharf on the Clipper ship where they had this special unit station called S SIU, Special Investigative Unit. And I served as a permanent stand-in and uh, a background artist on that, um, and met all kind of guys. I won't get in. I won't get into the name dropping on that. It was great. We filmed all over San Francisco, but um, but one day on the set, you know, I, I decided that I wanted to take a sabbatical from the show and go home just to visit. And so this was in um, this was like February, February two thousand. I decided that I wanted to go back to Port Arthur just to visit and relax for a while and see my relatives and friends. So I came back here to Port Arthur. It was the season for Mardi Gras, Mardi Gras season. And so I came to the Mardi Gras, was having a great time, seeing a lot of relatives and friends and whatnot. So I was here for like seven, eight days. 
And so after the Mardi Gras was over, I kind of like took a look around downtown Port Arthur. I noticed that the buildings, a lot of the buildings were dilapidated, falling apart. Uh, in my hometown, where, where, where my community where I grew up, on the other side of the railroad track, I noticed that a lot of businesses that were there when I was growing up there had shut down. Uh, many of our prominent citizens in the community had moved to the other side of the track, which is a good thing. I mean, everyone should be able to move and go wherever they want. But, you know, now that they have the fair housing laws in practice, now African-Americans were able to move wherever they want. So it kind of depleted our community of many of our business people, actually. So I'm not saying that segregation was a good thing, but I'm saying it had its, its perks when it came to keeping a whole vital community together. But it really sort of busted it up. So anyway, and I, and I walked around my community, my neighborhood, my old neighborhood, then I went to other neighborhoods that I used to frequent, and I noticed that, you know, the buildings were gone, businesses were gone, and and so anyway, I after being in, in Port Arthur for about eight days, I got back to Oakland, California, I kept thinking about my hometown and how someone needed to do something to refurbish the businesses that were there, and I also noticed while I was home that the air still had this foul odor like sulfur and various types of chemicals that I grew up with. You know, nothing had really changed when it came to the atmosphere and the environment. And so, but I really didn't think twice about that. I was really more concerned with the dilapidated condition and the lack of work for the citizens that were there. And so there I am back in Oakland, California, and I kept thinking about Port Arthur. I mean, I went there, stayed there eight days. I came back. Now it's still February. Uh, 19 uh, uh, February 2000 and so now I just started writing down some ideas of what I saw needed to be done in the city of Port Arthur to help refurbish it and bring it back to its former glory it was three months later that I moved back this was February that I went to visit May of 2000 I moved back to the city of Port Arthur on a mission we started a little community center uh, my brother ended up coming back about a year after I came back he lived in Baton Rouge so he said, well, man, if you if you were serious about moving home, I would have came back earlier. He said, but I think I'm going to come back and join you. I kind of miss home. And so when my brother came back, we opened up the karate school, and I got a building that was donated to me. I mean, it was just amazing how people rallied around me. Uh, I was 39 years old when I came back. And actually, the way people really found out about what I came home to do was um, I came home in May. And the following month was June. And there was a huge Juneteenth celebration out on a park called Booker T Elementary School Park. And so I was invited to come up on stage. And they said, well, Mr. Kelly, uh, we understand you do poetry. And I said, yeah. And they said, well, why don't you do something for us? And so I did a, a poetry piece and it's called My True History. And if you guys like to hear it, I can, I can share it with you. Please. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so I did a poem called My True History to help inspire. Whatever happened to my true history? We were more than slaves running to be free. We were kings and queens on the other side of the sea. The first coin was minted in the African land. The first sale was set by a black man's hands. Stripped from our land and sold into poverty, we did what we could to hold on to our dignity. We worked the land, cleaned and built for free, chained and shackled. Some could not flee. 
But for those that could, Harriet Tubman set them free. We learned the language and lost our own, but to our heritage and culture, we still hold on. You see, Louis H. Latimer, now he was all right. Without this man, Thomas Edison had a fight. He helped put the carbon filament into the light. Even though he was not born free, this man had vision that helped us to see. Many ideas and inventions have been stolen from thee, but if we still had them now, how far along would we be? Some well-to-do say everyone is equal now. Some well-to-do say everyone is free. Some well-to-do haven't taken the time to look at things statistic and economically. You see, Juneteenth started in the Texas land because we were the last to know that slavery was over and we didn't have to pick cotton for free no more. But they held on to the knowledge just a little bit longer while they figured out the economics of this godforsaken Yankee blunder. So the chains came off our wrists and necks. We didn't even get a thank you or a back pay check. Whatever happened to my true history? Wow. And I can see where the community would rally behind you after hearing <laughs> that. It's, I assume that's and what that's happened. that's exactly what happened. Before I knew, I mean, it was like kids out there. It was elderly folks out there having a great time. And everybody just stopped and sort of just gathered around the front of the stage. and was like, and they just started clapping. And next thing you know, when I got off the stage, uh, this gentleman by the name of um, Jack Chapman, he's a, he was a, he's a pastor. He said, Hilton, he said, man, he said, I love that poem. And what you're talking about doing is what we need more young people to do. He said, do you have a minute? Because there's some folks that's having a meeting right now. If you got a minute, I would love for you to meet them. I was like, look, I'm, I'm on a mission. I'm ready to meet any and everybody that I, I need to meet to help get this going. So I've always been the kind of guy to where, okay, you have lemons, you make lemonade. Okay, we know what we're dealing with. We can't cry about it now. Let's make the best out of what we have. Okay, now I got that end of it going. We got things going for the kids. Now I turn my focus to how do we get rid of this pollution? How do we make our community safe? Let's, let's look at that. That's how, that's, how can we wash it up, clean it up, and make it a, a vital a, a decent place to live. And that's when I got started maybe about a year later with really putting some, some bite into my environmental justice fight. Once I got started and, you know, Denny Larson had introduced me to the bucket, I learned how to take these grab samples because the bucket was basically a five gallon bucket and it had a, um, a gamma seal top on it to where you tighten it down. And you have two valves on top of the bucket that you have to bore holes and you put it in the bucket. And one's an intake valve, one's an outflow valve. And so you have a, a, a you have a, a a Teflor bag on the inside of the bucket. So when you're actually and you take a computer vacuum and you hook it to this tube that you have fixed on one of the valves. And as you're sucking out the air inside the bucket then the gamma seal bag is sucking the ambient air around you into the, the, the uh, Teflor bag. And there's a valve on the bag that once you disconnect from the gamma seal top, you can close that valve and now you have captured the ambient air that was around you. And we would send this air to a lab and we found that the, the ambient air that we were surrounded by that particular day was filled with benzene, sulfur dioxide, 1,3-butadiene, ethylene oxide, all type of toxins that we had 
ask the lab to look for, and we used an independent lab outside the state of Texas, and we found that we were really being impacted or, or bombarded with toxic chemicals, and that just it just infuriated me. And so I wanted to do something. I really got the fire lit under me once we had the evidence that this was happening. And so we held a press conference. So initially we didn't have a lot of media attention, but slowly they started coming. And we, we got their attention and now they want to know anytime we took an air sample, what was in the air. And so once I identified the fact that it was, this was a real threat and we identified that the chemicals we were being subjected to were known carcinogens and respiratory uh, 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 deterrents, man, I really wanted to make a difference then because I knew kids that were suffering from asthma. I knew people that had died from cancer. Many people in the city of Port Arthur just thought it was a way of life. But no, we were being poisoned. And the Environmental Protection Agency was doing very little to help protect us. Uh, the state regulatory agency, which is TCEQ, the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, was doing very little to stop it. And so the EPA back then, in 2000, was sitting on their hands. I mean, and I came into this work, I think it was under the Bush administration. And then after Bush, it was, um, it was uh, President Barack Obama. Then after that, it was, it was Trump. So, man, it was insane for how long these industries were just being allowed to dump into the air, knowing they were breaking the law. And so we ended up, we ended up suing the EPA. And the next thing I know, uh, in 2002, Denny Larson came to me and said, Hilton, he said, you know what? We need somebody to go to Capitol Hill and speak before the U.S. Senate. So I accepted the, the challenge, and uh, Denny Larson and CBE and whatnot, they, all, they flew me to, California, I mean, to uh, Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill, and um, they had everything set up. I was picked up at the airport, uh, brought to the hotel. Next day, we went to Capitol Hill before the U.S. Senate, and next thing I know, I'm on the front page of the Houston Chronicle, the New York Times, Washington Post, magazines. Everybody want to call and talk about the experience and, and the evidence about Port Arthur. I was like, wow, this is insane. But while sitting there before the U.S. Senate, I mean, I was just, I just couldn't believe it. And I brought my daughter with me. She was in the room, in the Senate uh, room when, when I got to, uh, when I was sitting at the front table to speak before them or testify as to what was happening in the city of Port Arthur and other cities like Port Arthur around this country. And so um, it was well received. We were fighting to stop, I think it was 40,000 tons of PCBs, polychlorinated bifinyls, nasty, from being shipped to Port Arthur from Mexico to be incinerated at the French-owned company called Veolia Chemical Incineration Facility. Veolia was partitioning the Mexican government uh, for the polychlorinated bifinyls. They wanted to incinerate it here. Veolia is like one of the largest worldwide uh, chemical incineration facilities around. And these guys boast that they do it better than anyone else. And they just happen to be located here. To add insult to injury, as if we weren't getting enough pollution from the refineries and the chemical plants, now we have a chemical incineration facility, Veolia, petitioning for waste from all over the world to burn here in the city of Port Arthur. And I found that as an insult, to say the least. Yes, I agree. I mean, it's like you don't give a damn about the people of West Port Arthur 
or Paul Arthur, period, for that matter. So we decided to fight Veolia, and it was a long fight, but ultimately we stopped the shipment of PCBs from being brought to the city of Port Arthur. And a lot of the politicians were standing up against me. Uh, but anyway, we prevailed and uh, we stopped the PCBs from being shipped here to Port Arthur, Texas. And that was one of our first victories. And it seems like Port Arthur is treated like the bottom of the drain because you were also supposed to be the terminal for the XL pipeline, the uh, pipeline that all the water protectors were fighting uh, far to your north. Yeah, where well, the Keystone XL pipeline battle was another one. Um, you know, I've gone all the way to, uh, was it, I think it was uh, uh, Wyoming, uh, where I stood in the snow protesting against the pipeline there with some Native Americans and, and others that were there uh, to speak before the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, we knew that the, the Keystone XL pipeline was a bad deal. And not to mention was the pipeline a bad deal, but the material that it would be transporting uh, all the way from uh, from uh, Alberta, Canada into Port Arthur, Texas was a bad deal because this bitumen, this really thick, gooey, oily tar material with the oil in it, it has to be processed. And it's a dirty, dirty process because it has so, so much sediment in it and dirt and debris. So it takes a lot of energy and, and water to help rinse this stuff. And then it's just dumped into waterways. But the pipelines was going to go under aquifers, over aquifers. And as we know, sometimes the earth shifts and pipes break. Things happen. Not to mention it was also uh, uh, interfering with the migrations of caribou from across, uh, across Canada. It was just a bad deal all the way around. But yet industry was, was going to do it. They were adamant about it. And so we fought tooth and nail to get the Keystone XL pipeline stopped. And this was like, what, maybe a four-year fight? Easy. And uh, under the Biden administration, it just got killed. So <laughs> it's not dead yet, though. But still, I think they ship in a lot of this material by rail, even though the pipeline was killed. But the process still goes on. But yeah, we were happy that we were able to stop it. It was a victory for us. It helped to save some of our forests. It helped to save some of our, our waterways, as we know. Water is going to be the next big commodity that we we're going to be warring over if we don't watch it. There's been flooding in Port Arthur, in uh, Lake Charles, all along the coast. And we talked uh, last week about transitioning the Gulf. I mean, do you see any hope of getting off oil and gas and, and any jobs coming in for clean energy coming into Port Arthur? Or Well, you know, there, there's always hope. There's always hope. You, you can never lose hope. It takes a team to do this work, and I'm just that front guy, but yet I am that guy that's on the front line. But yet I have a great team that's behind the scene that kind of keep me going, keep me floating, and keep me moving in the right direction with the right information. So I want to give kudos to them for all those, those years of, of support. But yet, you know, when we talk about offshore drilling, as we all know, you know, the BP oil spill took place few years ago, what it did to the waters in Florida, what it did to the Gulf. This has been happening for years. I remember back in 1968, 69, uh, my mother took us to a beach here in, in the Port Arthur area called McFadden Beach. It's on I-82 
and I-82 goes all the way from Port Arthur and Sabine Pass right into Galveston. So you go right along the Gulf. And I remember going to the beach one day and I'm running, having fun in the sand. And all of a sudden, I, I stepped into this soft patch of sand. And my foot just sunk all the way down to, up, all the way up to my knee. And by, when I pulled my leg out of the sand, this gooey mess was all on my leg. My mother, it took her about four or five days to get all this tar off of my leg. Come to find out that all along that beach, it was littered with these huge tar balls. And it was a spill that had taken place. And yet nobody did anything about it. it, it I mean, the beaches are still littered with tar that's been there for years. So fast forward, now it's illegal. Now they're doing stuff to stop it. But yet the BP oil spill, it really desecrated the lives of fishermen, oystermen that, that make a living on those waterways. Their lives will never be the same again. And so when I think about these kind of things, this, this is why I fight. It's not just for the citizens that live on the fence line, but it's also for the wildlife. It's also for people way of life when it comes to living from the ocean. You know, the fish were contaminated. Thousands of fish were killed. Oyster beds were destroyed. And so how do you, how do you pay a, a community back for that? The indigenous people were impacted heavily in the New Orleans area. But yet, you know, our fight basically is about cleaner energy, safe energy, and a safe product. But yet when you have industries that just bellow out toxic chemicals and toxic uh, uh, material and dumping it into the water, be it an accident or what, you're killing the life, the culture, the lifestyle of thousands of folks. And something has to change. And I'm very passionate about being a part of that change. And we're glad you're doing it. Thank you. Hilton, thank you so much for being with us today on the Rising Tide Ocean podcast. We're delighted with your successes, and there's a lot of work to be done. So we're glad that you are out there in the forefront and uh, know that we, through our organizations, really appreciate it, and I'm sure our listeners do too. Well, thank you. I appreciate that sentiment, and thank you all for having me on the show. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curlow. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support is provided by Studio Cape May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbark. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at www.bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear, Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.